Well, several years ago, my wife, Laura, uh, and I were sadly met with the death of both of her grandparents almost back-to-back years. Both of them had, str- had suffered from, late in life, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, I don't know if you know anything about dementia and Alzheimer's, but it's actually quite a nasty disease. Uh, people lose their memory. They can't remember their loved ones when it's really, really bad. They can't even remember themselves in some ways. And so late in Laura's grandparents' life, we, um, we were really saddened by what we were seeing. There were countless times where we would go and have a conversation with her grandfather, and he was on about a three-minute loop. If you've ever seen anybody with uh, Alzheimer's, you know what happens. They kind of get stuck somewhere, and they keep asking you the same questions over and over again. And as sad as that is, and as sad as that was, um, something even was more sad in some ways, and that was that he, and eventually her, her grandmother, they never knew it was happening. Does that make sense? They never knew that their memory was so short. They didn't know that things were not normal. For them, they were trapped inside of their own broken mind, as it were, and they could not remember what had just happened. Now, doctors call this this condition, this idea of not being able to remember, not being able to know your true state. It's a long word, and I have it written down here. It's called anisognosia. It's a big word that just simply means you don't know that you're sick. And that's one of the most crazy things about Alzheimer's and dementia is this, that it renders the the, the victim unable to know their true condition, which really is the disease itself. Let me say that again. That in a lot of ways, the sickening thing of this is that it renders the victim, the patient, they don't know their true condition. Well, why do I tell that story to you tonight? Because Paul is wanting to expose, in his letter here to the Romans, he is wanting to expose, as it were, a spiritual Alzheimer's. Something that blinds us to our real condition. Something that blinds us in a way such that we can't know what is really true about us. That we can't know the brokenness that is really about us. And though it doesn't appear in the text, the concept is certainly there. And it is this. It's the idea of moralism. Yes, moralism. Now, we're going to explore a little bit about what that means tonight when we take a look at it. But I want you to see tonight that Paul is going to show us that the idea or the concept of us, ourselves, trying to make ourselves good enough so that God would love us has no spiritual life in it whatsoever. That it is a dead end. And we can often be tricked by our own moral performances, right? Our own sort of being a good person that tricks us into thinking that everything is right between us and God. So, tonight we're just going to look at two points. I'm not going to reveal them at first. Instead, we're going to answer a couple, ask a couple of questions and then answer them, hopefully, throughout the night. And the first question I want to ask you guys tonight is, what is the problem with moralism? What is the problem with it? Well, let's take a look. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. And do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment 
of God. Now, when I talk about moralism, we first need to ask the question, what do I mean when I say that word? What is meant by that uh, language? Can I borrow this? Uh, yeah, thanks, Aaron. I've got it up here for us, so let's take a look. Moralism is the belief expressed or implied that good behavior is what makes us right with God. Y'all see that? That moralism is the belief that good behavior is the thing that makes us right with God. And what I'm suggesting tonight is that moralism is deadly. That moralism kills. And I hope you'll see why here in a little bit. But the thing I want you to know before we even get going is this. I am not saying, hear me loud and clear, this is on the tape, that I am not saying that morality is bad. Does that make sense? All through the Scriptures we see the importance of things like loving your children, loving your neighbors, being generous with your money. The idea of these, these commands that God gives us, they give us life. But here's the thing. The idea is what's expressed here in this definition, that it's the belief that by doing those things, that God now will accept us and make us right with Him. Does that make sense? We've got to know what I mean when I'm talking about, when I talk about moralism or everything else will begin to crumble. Let's take a look at this test here. Look at this as well. I want you to see in the, in the text that there's two, types, there's two types of moralism. The first is what I'll call a secular moralism, and it shows up between verses 1 and 5. And then secondly, a religious moralism showing up there in verses 17 through 29. Well, what do I mean when I talk about a secular moralism? Well, Paul was addressing his audience that day uh, when he was writing as if to say, you know what? What about those people out there, Paul, that look at what you have written in the back half of Romans chapter 1? And they say, yeah, Paul, go get them. I mean, lay the wood with these people. All these people, if you'll have your Bible, you can read it back there, who are evil, who are filled with malice. They're deceitful. They're slanderers. They're haters of God. Also, the idea of homosexuality showing up in there. And it's these moral people who are standing over to the side going, get them, Paul. That's exactly right. Well, Paul is coming to them and he's saying with a bucket of cold water in their face, listen, do you not know that you yourself, when you judge in that way, that you are under the same standard now? So there's such a thing as a secular moralism, a moralism that says, I really don't need God. We don't need God to be good. And the answer to that question is, of course not. But the idea here is, is that He's confronting a Greek audience that would have been apart from this Judeo-Christian background that would have said, yeah, I agree with you. But Paul says, listen, you're not let off the hook. And here's why. Because they create a standard. They create a standard of morality that is arbitrary. That says if you're good enough, you succeed. If you're bad enough, you don't. And what's interesting, hang with me on this, is what's interesting is Paul says at a moment that you set up that standard, something else happens. It causes you and me to size up other people. Y'all know what this is like, right? I mean, if you are set the standard and then you meet that standard, what happens to everybody else around you that doesn't meet that standard? You look down on them, right? Think about it like this. If you make good grades, right? If you're like, if people would just study hard, if they would just study hard and make good grades and make A's, then everything would go okay with them. But what happens when you make A's and when people don't make A's, what do you naturally do? Now, you may not admit to it, but you look down, to them and down on them in some way, especially if the standard is academic excellence. 
Now let's move off the grades a little bit. It can be anything. Perhaps it can also be, for example, some of us would say, you know what, here's the deal. Um, I want you to know that I've never slept with anybody. I've never messed around physically. I've never done anything physically with the opposite sex. And God is so pleased with me. And what Paul is saying here is, is that when you create that standard, you can't help but look down on other people who have not met that standard. And the idea, though, is this, is that the moment, the moment that you set the standard and make a judgment, Paul is saying that you yourself are underneath that same judgment because you've demonstrated the idea of a moral standard. Does that make sense? You'll see what I'm getting at? But it doesn't just happen over in the non-religious secular view either. There's a morality that is religious-based. Take a look with me at this back half in 17 to 29. Paul is talking here to his now, he's moving the lens from this moral secularist to this moral religious person called the Jew. And he's now saying, don't you, if you have, if you're a guide to the blind, if you're a teacher of children, if you have the law, so on, so on, if you say that somebody must not commit adultery, but you yourself are creating a, committing adultery, then don't you, by your very condemnation of somebody else, don't you now sit underneath that same condemnation when you partake of it? I mean, it's clearly obvious to us, right? It's called the H word. It's called hypocrisy, right? It's saying, it's saying, do as I do. I mean, do as I say, not as I do, right? And Paul says this, that whether it's religious or whether it is all religious or irreligious, that you're underneath the same banner, that none of it works. Now, let's, let's drive this home a little bit. Perhaps an illustration will help. Um, our four-year-old twin girls, Evangeline and Audrey, are hilarious at dinner time. Right now, they're learning how to pray, and Evangeline always wants to sing the God Our Father prayer at dinner, and it's really, really cute, and you should come to our house and eat dinner with us. But what's really funny sometimes is, um, and I got this the other day, um, we were praying, and Evangeline was singing, and all of us around the table, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Um, she said, Daddy, I said, yes. She said, Daddy, Audrey did not close her eyes when she prayed. Right? Now, what did she think? Audrey, her sister, was busted, right? The reality is what? I said, well, dear girl, let me, let's talk about this. For you... For you to know that your sister had her eyes open, you had to see her, right? Yes. And how did you see her if your eyes were closed? And she went, but daddy, her eyes were open. <laughs> right? But what's the point? You guys get it, don't you? We understand that the moment we lay the judgment that we ourselves are guilty as well. And what Paul is saying is he wants us to see that the problem with morality is this, is that it can never save. Because it sets up a standard that if we apply it to ourselves, that the judgers, ready, become judged by the judgment. Think about it like this. I am, uh, this is not my generation, but um, the selfie stick that has come out in recent years. I don't know if you own one. I'm not railing against it. But let's imagine from your very birth, that your very birth you were able to have a selfie stick follow you around for the rest of your life, right? Now imagine that every time that you stood up and you said, you know what, to someone else, you should this, 
Or this ought to be X. Does that make sense? Imagine that at your death, that we were just to play back the tape of at every point where you set a standard about what someone ought to do and what somebody should do. And let's say that God, all He's going to do is going to just play back the tape in your life. And He's going to say, fine, you think my standard is too great? Well, just go by your own standard. What were they? And what's going to happen? All of us are going to fail at meeting our own standard. That's the picture that He wants to show us. That even our best morality, y'all, can never, ever, ever save us. I think the thing that I also want you to understand is this. I want you to see that um, most of us conceive of Christianity as being, you know what I must do? I just really must kind of keep the rules. And what God wants for me is to just keep my nose clean. To, to pray, to come to RUF, to go to church, to not sleep around and not get wasted. And then... And then God will be finally happy with me and He'll accept me. And please, if you're about to fall asleep, or if you've not been paying attention, listen to what I'm about to say. Your goodness is not what makes God accept you. You need to sit in that. Your moral performance is not what God looks at to accept you. He looks to another, and that is Jesus. Does that make sense? And I think this is huge for us because it means, it means that all of our best efforts don't amount to a hill of beans. They cannot save us. And here's the thing is, here you go, ready? I'm going to step on some toes. That infuriates you. Because deep down, you want the list. Tell me what I must do, God, and I'll do it. And what God says is, is for all of your life, all your best efforts don't amount to anything because all they're ever going to do is to level the judgment against you that you yourself have set up. So the idea is this, my first point, what is the problem with moralism? Here it is, that there is a judgment, that there is a judgment born from us that comes against us, that it raises us up as judges It levels a judgment against others, but it comes back on ourselves and condemns us. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in the first few verses there of Romans chapter 2. Look, y'all, I want you to know this. This is incredibly important because it affects everything that we do in the Christian life. Because you have friends. You might even be in this room for the very first time hearing that what I'm saying is, is that being a good person is not what gets God to accept you. And all of your friends out there are thinking that Christianity is about being a good person so that God will love you. And what I'm trying to say tonight is, maybe for the first time, is that that's not Christianity. That that is called moralism. And it kills. There is no life in it. That's what Paul wants us to see. I told you the news wasn't great, right? It's not great. But there is hope. And I want you to see that's where we're going next. Secondly, I just want to ask this question. What hope then there is there therefore for those of us who are judged judges? What hope is there? And here's what I want you to see. I want you to turn your eyes to find the very incredibly paradigm-shifting verse 
in chapter 2, verse 4. Read it with me there together. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, here it is, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What do I mean here when I talk about what hope is there for judged judges? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand this very fundamental principle tonight from Romans, and that is the only thing that will ever change our lives, the thing that the moralist wants, is never his own behavior, but it is the kindness of God. Does that make sense? Here's what I want you to see. I think most of you think this, that if I that God's going to laser bolt my butt. He is going to be so pissed off at me. And if I don't, so what motivates the good living is seeing God's anger revealed at me. Does that make sense? That's not what the text tells us. The text tells us what? It's God's wrath? No. Is it His anger? No. It's His kindness. It's His kindness revealed to us that's meant to change our lives. It's meant to come into our hearts and life and to change the way that we live our lives. In other words, loved people, people who know that they are desperately loved, that's what really changes you. That's what really shapes you. And I want to suggest to you that this verse is paradigm shifting. It's what lies at the heart of Christianity. And if you flip the order, kindness, repentance, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. If you flip the order, it's your repentance that leads to God's kindness. You've lost Christianity. If it's, I need to clean up my act to get God's kindness, that is not Christianity, that's called moralism, and it kills everywhere, and it's never in the Bible. And what I want you to understand tonight, dear friends, is that God's kindness is being on offer to you tonight in the gospel. That this is, where the, this is what the gospel is all about. It is God's kindness opened up, revealed, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, to hacks, to train wrecks, to people who, who desperately need it. I tell this story, it's a story of a friend of mine. He's a pastor at a church in Florida. And uh, there was this man, I, I, you may remember this from a, a couple of uh, years ago if you've been around. I love the story. And I want you to see if you can find yourself in it. This man is a pastor. And they're, they're coming forward to take the Lord's Supper at church. And there's this man who smells like alcohol. He stinks. He's an alcoholic that has been a part of their body. And you can just hear him. He's come up to the table and he's just sobbing. And the gospel has been opened up. It has been preached. It has been told that God's kindness is what leads to repentance. And God receives people who are messes. And in the middle of the prayer for the Lord's Supper, this man in his 60s, with a drunken, you know, scratchy voice, cries out this. I'm about to use a bad word, but your college kids, you hear it all the time. He says this. He says, Pastor! Pastor, the gospel is just kicking my... Here's the question. Has the gospel ever come home like that to you? Has it ever been sweet as honey to you? Because you have seen your great need? But because you have seen that your life is actually not all put together? And that God's grace is... is that, that is magnetic 
for His grace? That's what I want you to see that Paul is getting at. That His kindness is the only thing that will ever change your heart. That it's the only thing that will ever draw you in. One more story to illustrate this. Another friend of mine named Scott tells the story about a man that came to him. Scott is also a pastor. And he said, you know what, Scott? Um, I, I mean, this whole Jesus guy, he's great, but I just don't think I can get on board. He says, why? He says, I, just, I, just, I don't like this idea that I've got to tell other people about Jesus. And he said, uh, you know that uh, you don't have to tell other people about Jesus for God to love you. That that's not what Christianity is. God doesn't look at you and say, how many people have you told about me and then I'll love you? Well, and the guy went off. Then a mutual friend uh, came up to him a couple of weeks later, came up to Scott and said, what did you, what did you tell? What did you tell this guy? This guy's going around sharing his faith with everybody. Well, a few weeks later, Scott meets up with a guy again and he says, I mean, I heard that you were telling people about Jesus. What, what's the deal? And he said, yeah. When you told me I didn't have to, I had to tell everybody that. Has the gospel come home for you like that? It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's His kindness that changes us. And where do we see His kindness most on display? We see it. We see it in the cross. Where is God's kindness most put forward? It is Him giving His very Son up for us such that we might be found in Him, such that we might rest in Him, such that we might take Him by faith and say that He is the one, that He is the reason, He is what I'm standing on, not my own good works, not my own efforts. Listen to the words from... um, from one, uh, from one old pastor from the 1600s. This is amazing. Listen to this. His name is David Dixon. And he says this. This was his last words that he wrote on his deathbed. He says, I have taken all of my good deeds and all of my bad deeds and I've cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from them both to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him I have sweet peace. What do I want to highlight about that and why does this matter tonight? Listen, anyone, anyone can turn from their bad deeds. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But what lies at the heart of Christianity, dear friends, is that you look at your good deeds and you turn away from them as well. That you flee from them. That you run from trusting in them. And instead, you take your good deeds... And your bad deeds, you throw them in a heap and you look to Jesus. That's what lies at the heart of Christianity. And what I want you to see tonight is many of you in this room have never fled from your good deeds. And so can I ask you tenderly, why? Won't you do that tonight? Won't you look at all of the good stuff, not the bad stuff, I'm saying the good stuff, that you're trying to parade before God and say, accept me because X, Y, and Z. And won't you throw those in a heap and flee from them and see that there is one who has been given for you? It leads me to a second point, and here it is. It means that in the gospel, 
that not only has there been a judgment leveled against us, but it means that there is a judgment that has been born for us. Here's what I mean. I want you to see that there is a judgment born for us. Notice the different spelling there. Here's the point. Not only are we the ones that exact and create judgment on others and therefore condemning ourselves, but the good news of the gospel is that there is one who has sheltered and shouldered God's righteous judgment for that, for us. Do you see? And it's there that the hope of the gospel lies. It's there where real forgiveness and real acceptance with God is found. Y'all, I just want to close here tonight and say this. I want you to know that it is, it is deadly to think that moralism will save you. And Paul has just taken the irreligious person, he's taken the moral secularist, and then he's taken the religious person that you can call a Jew or you can call a Christian, and he's basically lumped them all together. All of you, all of you, without Jesus, have no hope. No hope. But here's the deal. There is one who has done everything. There is one who was a perfect moralist, who met every law, who met every standard that the Father laid before him, and that is Jesus. And when we trust in his finished work on our behalf, listen, we begin 